Thank you. Well, let me just add my welcome to Mary's from earlier on. As she said, my name's Ben. I'm um, new here at uh, Inspire St. James. And if I've not met you yet, I look forward to meeting you in the near future. Thank you for the very warm welcome that I and my family have received. We're really grateful um, to you. As, it, as we begin, it would be really helpful if you could keep that passage open that we've just had read, John chapter 3. And as we start, I'm just going to pray for us. And I'm going to focus our hearts and minds on that verse that we've already heard a couple of times this evening. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we pray that this evening that your Spirit might be at work in our hearts and our minds to help us understand your Word and to believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to come to him for life in his name. Amen. Well, the question at the heart of this passage uh, this evening is a critical one for each and every one of us. And it's this, how can I have eternal life? And it's a vital question because while there are so many things that are uncertain in our lives and in our world, there is one thing that is certain, and that is that each of us will die. For the first couple of weeks when we'd moved here to Old Street, my morning routine would take me on a walk through the cemetery at Bunhill Fields. I don't know if you've walked through there before, but it's a sobering experience seeing the hundreds, if not thousands, of gravestones and plaques to people who lived and walked on the streets of London in the past, but have now died. And it's a reminder to me that whatever the advances are in medical technology over the coming 30 or 40 years, that one day I and you will join them. And for some, that reality of death is a painful one, whether it's the, the advance of age, weakness or illness that confronts us with our mortality daily. Maybe for more of us here at the evening service, it feels like a distant prospect, something that's hidden by the mirage of youth, or easily suppressed by the pursuit of pleasure or career or family. But nevertheless, one thing is still true of all of us here. One day we will die. And it is into that darkness that the Bible speaks its message of hope. It offers us a solution to death. It promises us, it offers us eternal life. And the whole reason that John wrote his gospel, if you remember, right at the end, he tells us that he's written so that we might have life in Jesus' name. And in this passage, this idea of eternal life comes up for the first time in John's gospel. And it tells us how we might have it. But just before we turn to this incident with Nicodemus, let's just clarify for a moment what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of eternal life. Because while it is true that Jesus does offer us a solution to death, eternal life in John's gospel is actually much more than just never-ending life. Eternal life in John's gospel is, is more about a restored relationship with God. It's about a quality of life rather than just a quantity of life. It's life as it was meant to be lived, life in relationship with God with the God who made us, who loves us. It's what John calls life to the full. It's life that actually starts the moment you believe in Jesus in the here and now and will continue beyond death. 
Eternal life is something all of us desperately need. But whether we realize it or not, it's actually something we all desperately want. And so how can we have life with God, this eternal life that begins now and endures beyond death? Well, in our passage, we're going to see that Jesus explains three things need to happen. And I just want to warn you at the start that this is a humbling answer for us because it tells us that there's nothing we can do to earn it. But it is also the most wonderful answer too because it tells us that it is simply ours if we believe in Jesus. So here is Jesus' answer as he engages Nicodemus, this religious Pharisee, this man, a ruler of the Jewish ruling council. And he says three things to him. If you want eternal life, The first thing that you need is that the Spirit of God must give you new birth. And this is verses 3 through 13. And they were introduced, if you look at verses 1 and 2, to Nicodemus, as I say, a Pharisee, a religious man, a member of the Jewish ruling council, an impressive man. And you see, he comes to Jesus in verse 2, impressed by what he's seen. And he says, no one, Jesus, could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus, however, seems to ignore him. Do you see in verse 3, he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, Jesus is not being rude here. But what he's doing, as we've just seen at the end of chapter 2, is that he's peering into Nicodemus' heart. And he's seeing what Nicodemus needs to hear more than anything. And what Nicodemus needs to know is that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus is confused. In verse 4, he says, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they can't re-enter their mother's womb and be born again. And so Jesus restates his answer in verse 5 and says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. The kingdom of God here is what the Old Testament looked forward to, the time and place where God's blessing would finally cover and fill the earth. And it would be a time and place where people would experience resurrection or eternal life. And Jesus says, if someone wants to see that kingdom, if someone wants to experience life with God, then they don't need to re-enter their mother's womb, even if that was possible. What they need is to be born from above. Or as John has earlier told us, to be born of God. Now, although Nicodemus is confused at this point, Jesus is actually teaching something that is a very basic biblical truth. It's kind of ABC of Christian theology, and it's what theologians sometimes call the necessity of regeneration by the Spirit. And the point is that sin so corrupts human beings that it leaves us spiritually dead. It leaves us alienated from God. Our hearts and our desires are so warped that they're turned in on themselves and turned away from God. In fact, left to ourselves, we would hate God. And that heart problem is something that none of us can do anything about. If we're going to know God, if we're going to be friends with Him, then our hearts and minds must be transformed, radically renewed, such that it can be described as being reborn, recreated by a supernatural act of God. You know, just as God's Spirit brought 
brought form to the original creation in Genesis, so the Spirit of God must recreate our hearts and minds. And this truth that Jesus is telling Nicodemus about it is one that we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, you could look at Titus 3, verse 5, or 1 Peter 1, verse 3, later on. But the striking thing here is that we find it in the Old Testament too. In fact, Jesus almost certainly takes this concept of spiritual re- rebirth and washing from a very famous text in the Old Testament called Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. You should have that underlined in your Bibles uh, if you don't already. And if the story of the Old Testament tells us anything, it is that sin is a universal human problem and corrupts us all. But in that famous passage in Ezekiel, God promises that one day he will pour out his spirit and his spirit will come into our hearts and he, he will wash our hearts clean with water and he'll make our hearts new and people will be able to know God and have life with him. And so prevalent is that teaching in the Old Testament, in fact, is that, that is why in verse 9, when Nicodemus asks, how can that be? Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. It's there, more or less, on every page. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience of seeing a car that's perhaps been stolen and uh, driven off the road, um, crashed and then left to be burnt out. I've seen it a couple of times. You see a car like that, and if you want to use that car again, what it needs is not just a new lick of paint or a bit of upholstery being cleaned. It needs to be remade. And spiritually speaking, our hearts are like that car. They need to be refashioned. They need to be given new life. And this is true not of all of us here, whoever we are. In fact, the shock of the passage in John chapter 3 is that this is true of people like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler, a leader, a religious man. Do you notice how John tells us a really important detail about him in verse uh, verse 2? We learn that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And on the one hand, that is just a historical detail, a fact He came when it was dark. But as you read on in John's Gospel, it's clear that that is actually also a description of Nicodemus' spiritual state. And if you look down, just very briefly, at verses 19 through 21, what we see there is that darkness is associated with sin. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he, as much as anybody else, has a corrupted and twisted heart. He loves sin. He loves himself. He does not love God. For all of the outward appearance and trappings of being religious, Nicodemus is in need of new birth just as much as anyone else. And if that is true of Nicodemus, then it's true of you and me too. The Bible offers us eternal life, but if we're going to have it, the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to be reborn. God's Spirit needs to give us new birth. But actually, there's far more to say on that question in this passage in John chapter 3. 
And the second thing that needs to happen if we're to have eternal life is not only for the Spirit of God to give us new birth, but for the Son of God to give his life for our sins. Did you see that? As the passage goes on, Jesus develops his answer to Nicodemus in verses 14 through 15 and then on into the rest of the passage. Jesus here in verse 14, let me just read it to you, uh, he's referencing an event that happened in the Old Testament from Numbers 21. And verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that is Jesus, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. If you go back into Numbers and you read that instant, you can do it later on, in your own time, you'll see that God has rescued Israel out of slavery and they're in the desert and they turn on God and rebel against him. And so God punishes the people by sending venomous snakes amongst the people. And the people start crying out for help. They cry out to God. And God in his kindness gives to Moses a bronze snake for Moses to lift up in the middle of the camp. And everyone who looks up at that bronze snake is spared and saved. And you see Jesus in verse 14 draws a parallel between that snake that Moses holds up and himself. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert so that people might receive physical life, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up so that we can have eternal life. This idea of being lifted up is an important one in John's Gospel, and it occurs four times. And it seems to refer to all of the events of Jesus' work uh, from the cross through to his ascension. But actually, as you read on in this passage and as you read on in the rest of the Gospel, there's a particular focus on the cross and the death of Jesus. For Jesus to be lifted up means that he is lifted up on a cross to die. And you see, for eternal life to be possible for us, Jesus paradoxically must give his life for us. You wonder, why is that necessary? And the answer is, I think, the passage from Numbers 21 hints at, is that our sins not only sort of alienate us from the life of God, they also make us guilty and bring us under the judgment of God. And I wonder if you notice how, as Jesus develops his answer with Nicodemus in verses 16 to 21, you saw how Jesus describes the plight of human beings outside of Jesus. Did you see in verse 18 how he describes us as being condemned. It's a legal word. It means to be guilty and to be liable to punishment. And you also see in verse 16 that he describes what will happen to us one day in the future, and that is that we will perish. And the idea there is not that we will cease to exist, but that we will cease to exist without the life and blessing of God as he withdraws himself in punishment for our decision not to trust in his son. That is the just and right consequence for sin, 
for turning from a holy and perfect and just God. And you see, the wonder is that Jesus is lifted up so that we might be spared. And we've just sung the song that tells us how that works. That when Jesus was lifted up, our sin was put on his shoulders. The guilt that was ours was borne by him. The punishment that our sins deserved was paid in his body on the cross. He was forsaken by his father. He perished for a time as his father turned away from the son whom he loved. He was cut off from the life of his father so that we might have eternal life. I remember for years um, really struggling as a teenager to understand why it was that Jesus had to die, why he had to be lifted up. I knew it was important. I knew it was central to the Christian faith. But I could never really understand why it happened or what it achieved. And I remember when an older Christian took me through the Bible and explained to me how it was that Jesus died in my place to bear my sin and how he turned aside God's righteous anger in my place. And I remember it really clearly, one Bible study, where the scale is like scales dropped from my eyes and the cross for the first time began to make sense. But actually, in, in what John wants us and what Jesus wants to understand here is not just how the cross works, although that's really important, but actually how the cross displays the remarkable love of God the Father. Did you see how John goes on, or Jesus goes on, in verse 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if what the Bible says is true about what we are like by nature, about the reality of our sin, about the reality of our hearts, then isn't that verse the most remarkable verse that you have ever read? That the Father gave his Son, who from all eternity he has enjoyed fellowship with, but willingly chooses to send his Son into the world to die for us, to save people who would stand at the cross and mock him. And yet that is what God did. When Jesus was lifted up, he died in our place. And the Father, in his love, gave his Son to us so that we could have life in his name. So the Spirit of God must give us rebirth. The Son of God must give his life, all of which is grounded in the Father's love for us. But Jesus' answer to Nicodemus has a third part. How can we have eternal life? Well, third, we must believe. And did you notice all the way through the passage how the necessity of belief is emphasized. We see it for the first time in verse 15. 
Everyone who believes has eternal life. It's there again in verse 16. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. It's there again in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And if you go through John's gospel time and time again, this idea of the the necessity of our belief is emphasized. And you see, God offers us new birth by his spirit. He offers us his son in his love. But if you are to benefit from the Father's offer to us, then you must believe in Jesus' name. Well, what does that mean? It's clear that it doesn't just mean being impressed by Jesus. You know, Nicodemus, it comes in the first couple of verses and says to Jesus, we know you're a great teacher, someone who has come from God. But we know that that's not what true belief is. Really, to believe in Jesus' name, as John chapter 1, verse 12 has already said, means that we receive him, that we embrace Jesus, that we welcome him. Do you know, when a child is offered a, a, a gift at Christmas, that child needs to welcome that gift, to accept that gift with open arms. And in just the same way, if we are to benefit from the Father's offer of his Son, if we are to receive eternal life, then we need to welcome Jesus with open arms, to accept him, to rest on him. All through John's Gospel, this idea of belief gets developed and expanded upon because it's so important. And as I said, there are all number of people in the Gospel who actually look like on the surface that they believe in Jesus, but in fact do not. We, we saw that last week, just at the end of, of chapter 2. And in fact, we see it in the example of Nicodemus, as I said. And through this passage, actually, Jesus then illustrates for us what genuine or true belief actually really looks like. What does it really look like to welcome and accept Jesus? And we see this in three ways, all of which Nicodemus fails to do. I wondered if you noticed that. So first of all, if you look at verses 11 through 13, we see that true or genuine belief in Jesus accepts the testimony that Jesus and the writer of the gospel give about him. Did you see that in verses 11? We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept that testimony. At the heart of that testimony is the testimony about who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God who has come into the world. And you see how Nicodemus in the first couple of verses calls Jesus rabbi. He calls him a teacher, He believes that God is with him, but he stops short of saying that Jesus is God incarnate. True belief believes that Jesus is the word of God come into the world. The second thing that true belief does, that receiving Jesus does, means that we accept Jesus' verdict on the world. We confess our sin. We acknowledge our need for new birth. We see that in verses 19 through 20. You see that? The verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And the key, but everyone who does evil hates the light 
and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And then verse 21, everyone who lives by the truth, that is everybody who believes in Jesus, comes into the light. They say, God, you are right. I am a sinner and I need rescue. The third thing that genuine belief does is that it looks to God's chosen means of salvation as their only hope. Back in Numbers 21, when the Israelites are dying because the snakes are biting them, what they do is they, cry, they look up to the bronze snake. And just by looking and turning, they are spared. In just the same way, genuine belief, once it recognizes who Jesus is as the Son of God, when it recognizes his verdict on us as guilty sinners, it then looks to the cross as our only hope of salvation and says, Jesus, save me. So we said the question at the heart of this passage right at the start was this, was how can I have eternal life? How can I have this friendship, this life with God that begins now and will not be interrupted by death? And Jesus says three things must happen. The Spirit of God must give you new birth. The Son of God must die for your sins. But to benefit from it, you must believe. And can you see that, as I said at the start, that this answer is both humbling and wonderful at the same time? It's humbling because it tells us that there is nothing that we can do to get eternal life, because it is only those who believe receive it. As I was preparing, I was reading the story of a man called Kamesh Sankaran, uh, a Hindu, and he spoke, uh, he was writing about how he became a Christian, and he spoke about the the humbling, he, he entitled an article that he wrote, The Humbling of a Proud Hindu. He was a child prodigy. Um, he was admitted to a NASA-funded PhD at Princeton. He was a devout Hindu and a leader of his Hindu community. And he found the message of Jesus so offensive because it told him that he was a sinner who needed saving. And it was only when God stripped away his confidence in himself and his achievements that he finally saw just how spiritually needy he was. And sadly, many are blinded by their achievements or their backgrounds or their education. And though God offers them eternal life in his son, they refuse to take it. Wonderfully, that story has a happy ending. And so does the story, actually, of Nicodemus, who at this point does not seem to believe. But if you read to the end of the gospel, you'll see that having once walked in the night, later he walks in the light of the cross. But this answer is not only a humbling answer, it's also the most wonderful promise because it's a promise for anyone who will believe. Eternal life is for you if you will receive it. No distinction on your race or background, your education, your achievements, your qualifications. There's no more inclusive message in the world. And you might be the most vile and most miserable sinner here, but if you believe and if you turn to Christ, then this life is for you. No matter how far you have fallen, 
no matter what that sin is in the back of your mind that you can't forget, if you believe in Jesus' name, if you look to his death on the cross, you have life with him, friendship with God, and hope in death. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he loves you so much, he gave you his son. Then all we need to do today is accept that gift and believe. And eternal life is ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of this passage that you loved the world and you loved us despite our sin that you gave us your one and only Son. And we pray that you would help us, whoever we are, whatever we have done, to believe and to have life in his name. Amen.